If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday morning. We'll be off to the beach and talk about one word that you never want to hear, shark. Turns out that there's a solid historical basis for this summertime obsession, as Anna Werner will make clear in our cover story. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, 100 years after the true summer of the shark, we return to a town in New Jersey and the unlikely scene of the crime. The way you describe it, it sounds almost like a frenzy. It was absolutely a frenzy. People were out for blood. What some call the real story behind Jaws. Ahead on Sunday morning. I think we're gonna need a bigger boat, don't you? Tonight is Tony night on Broadway and here on CBS as well. Sean Hayes is a past nominee and Tony host now performing the most heavenly stage role imaginable, as Lee Cowan will show us. I could smite the opposition with leprosy. Do you see, do you, do you see what I'm saying? The next time you have the urge to swear, yeah. perhaps exactly. think of taking Sean Hayes' name in vain instead. It's okay. He's used to it. He's playing God on Broadway. This is sort of like a talk show for God, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it does feel like that. Confessions of a comic deity. I have Dallas fever. Later on Sunday morning. Our summer song this morning is a song from the dead. Not the Grateful Dead, but from a refashioned band known as Dead and Company. Anthony Mason will bring them to life. The Grateful Dead's Bob Weir and pop star John Mayer may seem like an unlikely duet. We knew that we were going to have something to say. Yeah, I, I, it was the only time I ever got nauseous with excitement. <laughs> and they're the front men now for Dead and Company. Later on Sunday morning, the band making sure the Grateful Dead's long, strange trip goes on. The hottest ticket on Broadway this season is Hamilton, nominated for a record 16 Tonys. How this most unconventional of musicals came to be is the story Mo Rocca has for us. Alexander Hamilton was the only immigrant among the seven key founding fathers. He came from nothing and helped forge a nation. 
We take it as a given that hip hop music is the music of the revolution. I'm a diamond in the rough, a shiny piece of coal, trying to reach my goal. Two hundred years later, the musical he inspired has revolutionized Broadway. From the page to the stage with Alexander Hamilton, ahead on Sunday morning. Spoiler alert, he dies. With Rita Braver, we'll see how actors try to remember their lines. Jimmy Wax takes in a Broadway casting call. Connor Knighton is on the trail at a quiet Great Sand Dunes National Park. Warning, a shark attack is next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The scariest word at any beach has got to be the warning shark. Our cover story is reported by Anna Warner on the Jersey Shore. Welcome to Beach Haven, a slice of heaven on the New Jersey Shore. It's wonderful, and uh, we can't wait for another great summer here. I've been coming here since I was 18 months old. Love this place. Love the beach. It's relaxing. It's just a beautiful beach. The perfect place to take a dip and put your mind at ease. Unless, of course, you have a certain movie theme playing in your head. It was 41 years ago that Jaws left America trembling in fear. You know the story. Shark! The shark! A rogue shark terrorizing a tourist town. You're gonna need a bigger boat. While the book and blockbuster film are fiction, 100 years ago in New Jersey, there was the real thing with eerie similarities to Jaws. It happened before. The Jersey Beach, 1916, there were five, five people chewed up in the surf. In tell one them, week. Tell them about the swimmers. A series of deadly shark attacks, and it began right here in Beach Haven. America thought they were having one last golden, uh, gentle, innocent summer, uh, but that wasn't to be. Author and physician Richard Fernicola has written about the 1916 events. The extraordinary nature of the attacks, the viciousness uh, in that period, it, it still stands out. It stood out then, and it stands out even more, perhaps, in retrospect. Back then, sharks were a distant offshore curiosity. It was widely assumed they would never pose a threat to man. That all changed July 1, 1916, when a 25-year-old accountant from Philadelphia, Charles Van Sant, went for a swim and was viciously attacked. Doctors said there was no doubt he'd been killed by a shark. Five days later, some 45 miles north in Spring Lake, a bellhop swam out beyond the breakers. He, too, was killed. Here you had a case where there were no attacks for 50 or 100 years, and you, here you had two men in their 20s who were viciously mauled by a shark right in the beach zone. What happened next would turn fear to panic. 25 miles north, where the ocean waters meet Matawan Creek, a sea captain walking near a drawbridge saw a large shark heading upstream. This is where he saw the shark. At an we went with Dr. Fernicola to look at the scene. The important distance is how far from this mouth, how far from the bay 
are the attack sites. Yeah. So They're about one mile. In the next 45 minutes, the sharks swam that mile up to a swimming hole popular with boys from the town of Matawan, like 11-year-old Lester Stillwell. So right yeah. where we're going over yes, right now? right where we're going over right now, exactly. It was here where the shark found Stillwell in the deepest part of that swimming hole and took him under. It's such a serene spot. Serene, tranquil, you know, yes. It I does mean, you seem. just would not expect no. that no. right here. Y you wouldn't. The other boys ran into town for help. 24-year-old Stanley Fisher was one of those who answered the call. He and others dove in to attempt a rescue. And it was Fisher who finally emerged with the boy's body. But the shark wasn't done. He had come up to a, a little bit of a shallow on the bank and was viciously struck on the right thigh by this marauding shark. It spun him around twice, took him under twice. The boy was dead. Fisher died a few hours later. But they dammed up the creek, and so the creek is more narrow and more shallow than it would have been at that time. So For John Nichols, Fisher's death isn't just fact, it's family. Stanley was Nichols' great uncle, and something more. He's a man in your family who died a hero. He, he probably was a hero, but I think he also was a man of his times, and he knew the boys well, and he, and he was a member of the community. And the community, and all of America, it seemed, wanted revenge. Crowds descended on New Jersey to hunt the shark. They set up bounty rewards for sharks. They used dynamite and took old spears and pitchforks and rifles and other weapons to try to hunt the shark. The way you describe it, it sounds almost like a frenzy. It was a absolutely a frenzy. Sharks became uh, public enemy number one. And to this day, random shark attacks are always front page news. Although they're extremely rare, there were a record 98 attacks worldwide in 2015, including six fatalities. Last month, sharks bit swimmers off the coasts of Florida and California. But the experts say the fact of the matter is that humans are the real threat to sharks, with some 100 million killed every year, primarily for shark fin soup. So we have 26 sharks in this exhibit. We have sand tire sharks, which you can see above you right now, so the ones that teeth hang out. This, like this one here, yeah, right? Like that one. Shark educators like Nikki Grandinetti at the Adventure Aquarium outside Philadelphia work to convince people that sharks, if not exactly our friends, are a vital part of the ecosystem. What I really want people to understand is to learn to love the underwater world and the oceans, to understand that sharks are out there to be revered and not feared, to understand how wonderful they are, that they make up, you know, a, an important part of the food chain, and they're not these killing machines that are out there to eat humans or interact with humans. We are not on their menu. Um, sharks... Literally. We are literally not, not on, the on their menu. menu. <laughs> no. And there's no better way to convince us of that than to take us into the shark tank. You're my protector. Okay, You're I my got guide. you. I got you. Don't worry. Heading into the tank can make you nervous. While these sand tiger and sandbar sharks were curious and came a little too close for comfort, the truth is these are not known for attacking humans. A far cry from the killer or killers a century ago. The 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks ended soon after they began. 
While a great white shark was captured near Matawan Creek, the debate continues as to the culprit. Was it that great white? Was it a bull shark, which can swim in fresh water? Or was it several sharks? They still believe they stand out uh, among uh, shark attacks, perhaps even worldwide, as the titanic of shark attacks because of their frequency, their ferocity, the scientific context. At Stanley Fisher's gravesite, John Nichols pays his respects to the relative he never met but grew to know and admire. He just was in the wrong place at the wrong time in a bizarre set of circumstances that will never be repeated again. So you don't blame the shark, it sounds like. I, d I don't blame the shark. I mean, it, it was a collision course. And, um, um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't hold any animosity toward, uh, toward that shark or uh, sharks in, in, in general. And if he doesn't, maybe we shouldn't either. Ahead, on the trail to silence. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Every one of our great national parks deserves a shout-out, except perhaps for the peaceful place our Connor Knighton wants us to be still and listen. At Great Sand Dunes National Park, there are plenty of sounds. The sand whipping across the dune field. The laughs of visitors sledding and tumbling down the soft hills. And just two hours later, the patter of a sudden hailstorm. But these dunes in south central Colorado, famous for being the tallest in North America, are also among the quietest places in the entire country. Those dunes are one of the most remarkable acoustic environments in the world. And sound, when it strikes those surfaces, instead of bouncing back off, tends to get absorbed into the dunes. And so it's acting like a, a big sound deadening device. The two things that affect sound levels Scientist Kurt Fristrup carries a backpack full of devices he uses to assess sound quality as part of the Park Service Natural Sounds Division. You see that scrolling screen there and you can see... For 30 days, the equipment will sit out in nature and just listen, tracking wind speed and traffic patterns and whatever else might stumble by. In addition to measuring what the average conditions are, we try to capture a greatest hits, sort of albums of all the unusual or particularly significant or interesting sounds. At Great Sand Dunes, Kurt's team has captured everything from the sound of an elk bugling to defend its territory, to coyotes giving chase. In fact, this pocket of sand is quiet enough you could record an actual album here. Really quiet recording studio might be about 20 decibels. When you get up in the dunes, we get down into the single digits. We've had readings in these dunes that are on the order of three or four decibels, so quite a bit quieter. With background noise levels that low, it makes eavesdropping easy. It really is crazy how sound travels in the dunes. From here, I can hear every word of the conversation of those people all the way over there. When you get into these really quiet places, all of a sudden the soundscape you perceive 
becomes amazingly expansive. You suddenly feel much more closely connected to that place because every little sound, you're aware of it. So you hear it. That connection to the sound of a place is crucial, even if it often goes unappreciated. Almost every visitor to a national park carries a camera and goes home with an image of the park. And I've often wondered why more people don't come to parks to make a recording, because in some respects, sound evokes memory more powerfully than photos. The sound of silence is a natural resource that's quickly diminishing. Scientists like Kurt are determined to make sure we still preserve it for future generations. Your hearing is about 10,000 times more sensitive than it needs to be to hear me talk to you. Why is that? Because our ears were designed to listen to all the subtle sounds out here that alert us to possible danger, to possible opportunity. Going into a park, it's a chance to reawaken that sense of really mindful, attentive listening. A chance to experience a soundscape just as impressive as a landscape. In all the field of race relations, probably nothing is more sensitive than the issue of intermarriage. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. June 12th, 1967, 49 years ago today. A day of triumph for a basic human right. For that was the day the United States Supreme Court unanimously struck down state laws banning interracial marriage. Difficult as it may be to believe today, 16 states at that time still had such laws, Virginia among them. Virginia residents Richard and Mildred Loving had tried to sidestep the law by marrying legally in the District of Columbia in June of 1958. But back home in Virginia, they were soon found out. Tell me what happened after you got married. As Mildred Loving told CBS News correspondent Robert Fearpoint. The police came after us the 14th of July. We were married a month and a few days. Mrs. Loving, what has been the worst part about all this for you? Well, I guess the worst thing that was spending a little time in jail, that's the worst thing. In January of 1959, the Lovings pleaded guilty to violating the so-called Racial Integrity Act of 1924. Uh, what did they tell you you had to do? The judge then offered the Lovings a choice, a full year in jail or exile. They said I had to leave the state. And what happened after that? Well, my left. <laughs> and, and took your wife with you? That's right. The Lovings moved to the District of Columbia, where in 1963 they began the legal challenge that eventually led to the Supreme Court and vindication. As Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote, quote, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. It's hard to believe, and I still don't believe it, but, you know, I feel free now. Richard and Mildred Loving are both gone now, but their victory is celebrated by marriage rights advocates every year on this day, called, appropriately enough, Loving Day. Alexander. Aaron Burr. Sir. It's the middle of the night. Can we confer, sir? Next, yes, Hamilton. Tony nominated 16 times over. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. These treasured wedding bands belong to Alexander Hamilton's wife, Elizabeth. They are from the collection of Columbia University. And by night's end, this treasure, the Tony Award, is widely expected to belong to Hamilton, the musical based on his life story. Mo Rocca tells us all about the most talked about show on Broadway. When we first met Lin-Manuel Miranda, Hamilton, the musical he wrote and stars in, was still off-Broadway at New York's Public Theater. Now it's a smash on Broadway, winner of a Grammy and a Pulitzer, and nominated for a record-breaking 16 Tony Awards. What's your name, man? Lin-Manuel Miranda. (laughs) It's no exaggeration to say it's a cultural phenomenon. Talk less. What? Smile more. (laughs) Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. The show tells the story of Hamilton's life and death at the hand of Vice President Aaron Burr, played by Leslie Odom Jr. And it's put to music that's as energetic as the man and the times he lived through. We take it as a given that hip-hop music is the music of the revolution. Is that because of the energy? It's because of the energy. It's because um, the hip-hop narrative um, is of writing your way out of your circumstance. Uh, I, I joke to someone else, I think, all my favorite hip-hop songs are really good musical theater I want songs. I want to get someplace else. I want to get somewhere else. I want to get my corner of the sky. Born out of wedlock in the Caribbean and abandoned by his father, Hamilton was just 22 when he served as General Washington's aide-de-camp during the Revolutionary War, and 34 when he became the country's first Secretary of the Treasury. I think that this is a classic immigrant story in terms of someone recognizing the opportunities in this brand-new, turbulent, wide-open society. Ron Chernow wrote the biography that inspired Miranda. He's kind of the ultimate immigrant. He's the ultimate immigrant, and he's the original uh, immigrant. I dare say he made the greatest contribution of any immigrant in the history of the United States. Monsieur Hamilton. Monsieur Lafayette. In command where you belong. Now you say no sweat. We're finally on the field. We've had quite a run. Immigrants, we get the job done. Miranda's own parents came to New York from Puerto Rico. You know, my father came here at the same age as Hamilton. He'd already graduated college by 18, and he came with a full ride for NYU's postdoc psychology program. Didn't speak English, um, and learned it here while he was studying. And writing this story has helped me understand him. Much has been made of the fact that the cast neither sounds nor looks like the founding fathers. This is the story of America then, told by America now. It looks like America now. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And when I'm Thomas Jefferson, oh, I'm going to compel him to include women in the sequel. Work! Philip Asu plays Hamilton's wife, Eliza Schuyler. Eliza's sister, Angelica, is played by Renee Elise Goldsberry. 
my father, I told him that I was doing this, and he was like, who are you playing? And I said, Angelica Schuyler. And then a couple days later, he was like, how are you playing Angelica Schuyler? <laughs> did, I, did a little yeah. research, and I'm a little confused. This was a time when the political could get extremely personal. Here's Hamilton, who favored more federal power, debating David Diggs's Thomas Jefferson, who favored states' rights. Oh, but Hamilton forgets his plan would have the government assume states' debts. Now place your bets as to who that benefits, the very seat of government where Hamilton sits. Not true. So it makes perfect sense that Hamilton and Jefferson are arguing about the role of the federal government in the form of a rap Yeah, smackdown. 60 seconds for Jefferson, 60 seconds for Hamilton. We assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic, how do you not get it? If we're aggressive and competitive, the union gets a boost, you'd rather give it a sedative? Cabinet response determines the winner. After he was slain by Aaron Burr in their 1804 duel. He aims his pistol at the sky! Wait! Alexander Hamilton was mourned as a hero. History has its eyes on you. His life's journey as improbable as the musical written about him. The way I hold a $10 bill is different now because, like, that's my dude. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. I mean, I was God, but I wasn't really Godding. You know? Still to come, Sean Hayes. That's it. Here's me, their state, okay? Keep us separate. Just the vibe on Broadway. Later, a second life for the Grateful Dead. I do a better share than you. You think so? <laughs> Actually, it's... You think so? Ho! Oh. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Sean Hayes first won notice for his breakout role on the TV series Will and Grace. Now, as Lee Cowan tells us, this past Tony nominee is back on Broadway with a divinely inspired role. So we have 97 shows <laughs> left, and I can rip it today because we 96. In his dressing room at the Booth Theater on Broadway, we were trying to get a sense of whether actor Sean Hayes had any pre-show rituals, but somehow he turned it all back on me. Did you have any rituals before you started today? No. No? No, I don't. I wish Sarah? I did. Say shower. You, you showered? I showered oh, fantastically. <laughs> That's wonderful. Apparently, Hayes doesn't need any good luck rituals. After all, he's a god. Says so. Right there. This is just my regular placard for any job I have. <laughs> they just changed the title of whatever job, whatever gig I have here. I thought, let me take a brief break from eternity and devote the better part of a week to creating a universe and, I don't know, just kind of see what happens. Yes, Sean Hayes, perhaps best known as the flamboyant Jack McFarlane on NBC's Will and Grace, has descended to Broadway as the Almighty. To be more precise, the Almighty has actually inhabited Sean Hayes' body, 
to help deliver an updated set of Ten Commandments. For the first and last time ever, I actually answered a prayer. It's pretty much all him up there for 90 straight minutes, riffing on the mysteries of life, sitting on a divinely white couch. I'm still nervous. Are you really? Yeah, I still get nervous every single show. Everybody's looking right at you saying, make me laugh. And you're playing God. And I'm playing God. <laughs> so there's that. An act of God is irreverent, poignant, and ever-questioning, which is fitting. Hayes was raised a Catholic outside Chicago, where he had a lot of questions, it seemed, God couldn't answer. I come from a completely dysfunctional, alcoholic family. So um, we, we kind of parented ourselves a little bit. It was his mom who raised him. His father abandoned the family when Sean was only five. I remember he, he uh, was about to exit the door, and my mom said, you're not even going to say goodbye to your kids? And he just goes, and he turns around and gives me like a half-hearted hug and then left. That's, remember, that's all I remember. So how did that sort of impact you growing up? Yeah, I don't know. That's why I'm in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but it clearly is something that stuck with you. Yeah, I mean, I think I have a lot, a lot of issues because of it. He was dealing with a lot back then, most of it all by himself. Things even his mom and four siblings didn't know at the time. Knowing you're gay as a kid in the 80s, it was a very scary thing. I felt like I couldn't fully be myself and accepted in my family. So I would lock myself in my room on a Saturday night and watch Saturday Night Live, and that was like the best thing that ever happened to me. I was like, and I would imitate all those people at school. And at school, you find your niches where you are accepted. And that was theater. But he had another escape, the piano. He started taking lessons shortly after his father left. He thought he might one day be a concert pianist, but as it turned out, classical music helped him find his funny bone instead. He points to Mozart. I can't remember the number, but... <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's funny. I'm sure he did that to be funny. With Mozart as a muse, he and his old friend the piano went off into the world. Performing put Hayes through college at Illinois State University and playing helped support his move to Los Angeles, where he eventually landed a part in an independent film, Billy's Hollywood Scream Kiss. I mean, you gotta admit, our fashion is ages ahead of what everyone else is wearing. I mean, come on. It was that performance that got him the audition for Will and Grace. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Just Jack. The role that catapulted him to fame and made TV history. Much has been written about the show's social impact. Vice President Joe Biden even credited the sitcom for helping shape the nation's views on same-sex marriage. I think Will and Grace probably did more to educate the American public than almost anything anybody's ever done. Mom, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but this is who I am. You could never disappoint me. I just want you to be happy. But at the time, despite winning an Emmy, the intense cultural spotlight was a bit too bright. It was a very difficult time and, um, and a struggle with, with myself as, do I come out, do I not come out? I, I, 
don't have the DNA to be a spokesperson for an entire community. I don't, I'm not that savvy. I'm not a politician. Do you feel that pressure though? Absolutely. I felt so much pressure to come out on other people's terms, you know. I should have come out earlier. I should have used that platform to to show people it's okay and to educate people um, that I'm okay with myself and if you're not, it's your problem, not mine. But I just wasn't smart enough. I was too young and naive and I was scared. I was, I was so scared. The fear eventually subsided. He did come out publicly after Will and Grace ended and he would soon meet the love of his life, his husband, music producer Scott Eisenach. And perhaps there is no better measure of their blissful life together than their recent Facebook videos. I gotta, gotta have it, uh-oh. When I can't find the words, I just go. The homemade lip-sync performances just started out as a joke, but they quickly went viral. I should have known you were bad news. In fact, they grew so popular, they started getting some music executives' attention. Now the record companies call us and say, we thought it'd be fun if you did this song. And we say, we thought it'd be fun if you paid us to do that song. <laughs> At 45, there's a lightness about him now, he says. And yet, on the way to his opening night after party, he explained there is still nothing like the feeling of being frightened. It's a love-hate. I mean, it's like you, you scare the crap out of yourself. Uh, and, it, and like, why would you choose to do this with your life? I don't know, it drives me crazy, but I still do it, you know? His castmates from Will and Grace are still close. Deborah Messing, who played Grace, came to cheer on her longtime friend. After all, how many times do you get to party with God and ask what he's doing down here in the first place? The overall message is you can believe in God, you can't believe in God, whatever you choose, but you should believe in yourself first and look within yourself to better the world first before relying on an outside source. That fits pretty well with where you are in life now, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Look at you wrapping things up. <laughs> yeah, that's really but good. But doesn't that mean it seems like it, you're comfortable with who you are and what you're doing? Absolutely. It took a while to get there. Absolutely, you know, and it's, it's never ending. It's, it's an endless journey trying to figure out who you are and your purpose in life. Thou shalt believe in thyself. He may still be on that journey, but as he prepares for his summer-long run as an all-knowing, wise-cracking deity, Sean Hayes has found peace and happiness that seems truly heaven-sent. Broadway actors really do try to remember their lines from well before the opening night. And they all have their own ways of doing that. You've asked Rita Braver to go in search of their secrets. Am I the only one that thinks this is weird? Maybe it's not weird. Maybe we're pioneers. Mm, no, we're hardly pioneers. You have three different hair dryers for different types of weather. Even with five Emmy Award nominations for his work on the popular TV comedy, Modern Family. We have what they want. Oh, oh a pet daughter. That... Even though he's been acting on stage since he was six, Memorizing a new script can still traumatize Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Do you at all feel nervous about what? Oh, people I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm terrified. No, just because it is. It's just me. This time, it's just him in fully committed, 
a one-man show he was still learning when we met up in a Broadway rehearsal hall. These are lines that I've, I haven't really nailed down yet, so I've highlighted a lot of them. So. Ferguson plays not only a harried maitre d' in a hot New York restaurant. Good morning reservations, can you hold please? But also some 40 other roles. I also play all the people calling into the restaurant, trying to score a reservation. I play the chef, I play the hostess, I play the business manager, I play Naomi Campbell's assistant. When I do a Broadway show, I get to take a huge pay cut, memorize a ton of lines, and work twice as hard on weekends. Oh God, what have I done? What have you been doing to learn this script? Well, eating lots of leafy greens to keep my brain sharp. <laughs> but I haven't looked at the whole picture. I've looked at small chunks. Because if I look at the whole 90 pages I have to learn, I would have you know, put myself into an insane asylum. But because I can allow myself just small chunks, and I say, OK, today I'm going to try and learn these 10 pages. And then the next day after that, I'm going to learn those 10 plus another five. If I were rich, yeah, a few blocks away, Danny Burstein, with a Tony nomination for Best Actor in the hit revival of Fiddler on the Roof, shares the stage with lots of actors. Be happy, be healthy, but the part of Tevya, a poor Russian Jew struggling to hold on to his traditions, is arduous. You're on stage how long? I'm on stage for three hours, uh, except for 13 minutes of the show. Have you ever known an actor who just picks up a script, reads the page, and remembers it? There are a lot of people like there that. There are people who have. I am not like that. But after 16 Broadway shows and now six Tony nominations, Burstein has an established technique for learning lines. Does it get easier? No. <laughs> and he let us follow him to watch the year-long process. You can never be prepared enough. I don't like to leave anything till the last minute. January 2015. As the good book says, if a poor man eats a chicken, one of them is sick. When a poor man eats a chicken. Yes, he's learning his lines for Fiddler while appearing in another Broadway revival, Cabaret. See a palace rise from a two-room flat. Were you ever on stage performing cabaret and found yourself suddenly thinking about Fiddler? Yes. <laughs> in May of last year, it was time to work with a music coach. They gave each other a pledge. And by July... Stop one, 103rd Street is next. Burstein subway rides became study sessions. Why is it such a great place to learn lines? Because everybody's in their own world. There's that noise from the train, and I disappear into the book. Sometimes getting too caught up in an emotional scene. And, you know, you're standing there in the subway with a lot of people that you don't know in a, in a packed subway car and trying not to cry. Um, you know, but that's my life. Jesse Tyler Ferguson also studies during his commuting time, Los Angeles style. I look like a crazy person when I'm driving around in LA because uh, I'm running my lines, just talking to myself, and like, you know, using gestures and like <laughs> screaming and then doing these different characters. Ferguson was memorizing his Broadway role while shooting Modern Family. Those lines usually given to him the morning of a taping. 
that's the thing about TV. You hold your script in your hand until and then the you moment put it before, down, and then you and put then it behind my back it, yeah. or behind a pillow or in a drawer, and then you start the scene. As the good book says, heal us, O Lord, and we shall be healed. For Danny Burstein, learning lines is really homework. Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Well, everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. And the papas, right? Yeah. Last September, with the first rehearsal for Fiddler just a week away, he was running lines with his wife, actress Rebecca Luker. We understand each other, we understand the business, we understand each other's, you know, weaknesses and strengths and how to help each other. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan? When I'm up there on stage, you know, she's up there with me, and I think that she would say the exact same thing. Burstein reached his goal. He memorized the entire show before the first rehearsal. Still, Fiddler's director, Bartlett Scher, says that is only the beginning. Learning your lines is like the first step to moving into the mind of the character. So the process of learning the lines is a process of transformation. It's the process of becoming someone else. But Cher acknowledges one of Broadway's secrets. Some well-known and always unnamed actors never learn their lines. Years ago, he found himself whispering into a microphone connected to a tiny earpiece worn by an actor. I had a script, and I would feed him his lines. The conversation between me and the actor knowing the lines was reading the signs as to when it looked like he didn't know what the hell was about to happen next. <laughs> Danny Burstein wouldn't be caught dead wearing one of those earpieces, but he says that over a long career, even the most accomplished actor is bound to go blank. Have you ever forgotten a line? Yes, absolutely. So what do you do? You keep going. People come to see a live performance. We're not robots where it hasn't been taped beforehand. That's the exciting experience of being there in the room. It's immediate. You're right there with that person, and they're doing it live in front of you. Things like that happen. Coming up. I just yelled, hey, Ali, I'm from Louisville. How you doing? We stopped at the red light together, so we were side by side. It's like one of my moments of my life. A chance encounter with Muhammad Ali. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The eyes of the world were on Louisville, Kentucky Friday and the memorial for Muhammad Ali. It seems as if everyone in Ali's hometown had crossed paths with him at one time or another, and they'd been telling tales of their brush with greatness to Steve Hartman. To really know Muhammad Ali, you need to come to Louisville and talk to the people who knew him least. People who had just a brush with the greatest. Those random strangers can testify to his true character, as they did for us, repeatedly. You can't swing a dead cat around here and not hit somebody who's, 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 who's yeah. mad at him. Yeah. Wayne Shemwell hollered at him across a shopping mall once. I just yelled, hey, Ali, I'm from Louisville. How you doing? He just looks up and says, hey, fool, that ain't no way to greet somebody from your hometown. Come on down here and shake a hand like a man. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I came down to shake his hand, yeah. Kelly Jones ran into him at the airport, where Ali asked to hold his baby. 
and I can specifically tell you they played patty cake. Those are things that as a dad, you never forget your entire lifetime. And Derek Northington pulled up next to Ali at a traffic light and couldn't get away. We stopped at the red light together, so we were side by side. And he talked, we talked maybe through three or four red lights. That's amazing. Well, that's the type of being he was. Whether you served him soup. A class act. Or simply rode with him in an elevator. It's like one of my moments of my life. Ali not only accommodated his fans, he, was a he, he enjoyed was them. And anybody met him, you would have remembered that. You would want to remember that. We spent a full day talking to people who met Ali about what made him so great. And not one mentioned boxing. Instead, to these folks, Ali was gracious beyond compare. Even if you were just a heckler at the mall. He, he made you feel like you were the most important person in the world. And, and now uh, he's passed on, but he'll never pass on in, in the hearts of those who had opportunity to touch him. Never. I gotta stop. Muhammad Ali, Sorry. we hardly knew you. Truckin' is a classic from the Grateful Dead, a band that was headed for years by the late Jerry Garcia. A reshuffled version of the group, complete with some familiar faces, is the subject of our summer song, Anthony Mason has been watching the new dead come to life. As the deadheads lined up outside San Francisco's landmark Fillmore Theater last month, Dead and Company warmed up for the first gig of their summer tour. The group includes three of the Grateful Dead's surviving core four, Mickey Hart, Bill Kreutzman, and Bob Weir, joined by John Mayer. I'm going in tonight like a... Yeah like a 1930s boxer. Keyboardist Jeff Comenti and former Allman Brothers bassist Otiel Burbridge. If the lineup has changed, the catalog hasn't. The crowd is here to hear the Grateful Dead. We attract a certain kind of person who requires a little adventure in their lives, and you can watch the faces over the years. The front rows stay the same age. That's got to feel good to you. It's great. What we're doing musically is, uh, is about constant revolution. A revolution that, in a way, started here at the Fillmore just over 50 years ago. What was your connection to this room? Well, you know, it was the first big room we ever played. Dozens of dead posters line the Fillmore's walls. Maybe that's the one. Well, it's Including one of the first gigs promoter Bill Graham ever booked at the venue in 1966. We had just changed our name from the Warlocks to the Grateful Dead because somebody had copyrighted the name Warlocks. He wouldn't print Grateful Dead. Why? Ah, he didn't like it. He came around eventually. Oh, any day, don't worry about it. How does it feel now compared to them? Kind of like home. Does it? Yeah. The dead are icons here. A giant photo of the late Jerry Garcia, who died in 1995, hangs in the stairwell. They made this look like church almost. <laughs> <laughs> He'd hate that. Would, would he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> What was the connection you two guys had? We kept each other amused. That was the whole secret sauce, whether it be intellectually, musically, or just, you know, backstage. That's got to be pretty special. It was. Well, you know, I, it was all I knew for 30 years. 
Weir joined the band when he was just 16. Drummer Bill Kreutzmann was 18. Garcia called me up and said, you want to be in a band? I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> Kreutzmann then brought in another drummer, Mickey Hart. He asked me to sit in one night, and that was that. Yeah. The most important thing about that night, I remember Garcia said, this is what the Grateful Dead sounds like. Driving that train, how cocaine. They had a nice little one better. In 1966, the band moved into a communal home in Haight-Ashbury. Eventually, you were all in here? Every couch. It's really crowded. <laughs> where deadheads still carve tributes in the tree out front. Pigpen, he lived right up there, yeah. right up yeah. the top. It's those days, the uh, buses used to come back and forth and say, this is the home of the great Dead," And he used to wake Pigpen up. So Pigpen just opened the window and he would just give him a little, give a little moon out there, you know. And if that didn't work, Bob Weir would be up on the roof with water balloons. And he'd be, he'd be chucking water balloons. This is the house of a popular local band which plays hard rock music. They call themselves the Grateful Dead. In 1967, in the summer of love, CBS went inside the house for a documentary called The Hippie Temptation. I think, for personally, that uh, the more people turn on, the better world it's going to be. Later that year, police raided the house, arresting two band members on drug charges. He actually planted two bricks in the house, he could have just looked right behind the uh, the file cabinet and found it. He left the kilo in the pantry up on the top shelf. <laughs> so he had something to smoke, and they came back. Last summer, on the Dead's 50th anniversary, the four surviving members played their Fare Thee Well tour. Five dates billed as their final concerts together for 365,000 fans. Just pure love. If you could ever imagine anything like that, I've never felt anything like that before. With bassist Phil Lesh bowing out from touring, the others chose to go on as Dead & Company. How do you view this after that? Well, this is a different venture. Christ, I'm nowhere near done. There were some folks who were expecting, okay, after the Chicago shows, I was going to work on go work on my golf game or something. <laughs> and. Uh, but you can't do that. Yeah, I'm saving that for my golden years. Dead and Company came together last fall, and the younger members are still learning to keep up with the Dead's deep jams. How often do you get that, where the hell is he going with this feeling? Oh, in this band? It's like, <laughs> right. where the hell am I going with right. this? <laughs> right. There has to come a moment where it's time to play a guitar solo, and I'm just playing the solo, and I'm not wondering what Bob thinks about it. Do you feel this out there? With some amusement, yeah. The first time I played with, uh, with, with John Boy here, I ascertained that this guy can handle the chores. Weir and Mayer connected when they played together on a TV show early last year. We knew that we were gonna have something to say. Yeah, I, I, it was the only time I ever got nauseous with excitement. <laughs> this is home while you're here? Yeah. Yeah, uh, at the risk of being too literal, <laughs> I, I live in an RV in Bob Weir's parking lot while I'm, <laughs> while I'm uh, playing with Dead & Company. During two weeks of rehearsals, yeah. I mean, Mayer lived out right back of Weir's studio in San Rafael. My front door of my house, and that's work. <laughs> and I defy anybody to show me a better commute, a better than, that. commute than that. <laughs> 
The 38-year-old singer has put his solo career on hold for the summer tour. I don't know if you've noticed, everybody has left, Bob. Right. <laughs> what does it mean to you to be in this band now? Oh, man. I have so much more connection with my guitar now than I think I ever had. This solidifies musician over celebrity. It roots me in the thing I love the most. The reason I wanted to be in this band was to be able to interact with it live. It would be what I imagine an actor saying, I really want to be in a scene with Pacino. You're Pacino, Bob, did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> You're talking to me? <laughs> Actually, that's De Niro. But the 68-year-old guitarist has been thinking a lot about legacy. On the road last year, Bob Weir had a dream that persuaded him the dead's long, strange trip has a long way to go. What did you see in that dream? We were on stage, and suddenly I found myself like 20 feet behind my own head, looking at myself, playing, and then I look over at him, and his hair is gray, and it's 20 years later. And then I look back at myself, there's somebody with brownish, blondish hair in his late 20s. It's not you. Not me. This is the music going on. And how did it feel? You know, it felt altogether right and felt logical. You know, okay, that's what I've been up to all my life. If everyone can please take out their headshots and resume. Ahead, many are called. Few are chosen. Just so I can be a star. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The actors who answer a Broadway casting call probably all hope to win a Tony someday. But first, they need to survive that audition. And as Jamie Wax now shows us, even for the biggest names, there are no guarantees. Was that because you were female? Oh, you're ahead of me, Prime Minister. I was banking on the fact that I still am. Are you at a point where auditioning is behind you for every role? One would think you were. I don't know. Only... I mean, there might be the odd role that I really want to do, and I know that they're not thinking of me for, because they think now I'm the bloody queen. Um, and, and I would say, look, let me just maybe show you what I can do with this. For all actors, auditioning is part of the job. From veteran Dame Helen Mirren. He will not always say. To Broadway newcomer Ruthie Ann Miles, last year's Tony Award winner for The King and I. I think I always have to audition because I'm not even sure if I'm right for a part. To this year's Tony nominee, Leslie Odom Jr., who plays Aaron Burr in the musical Hamilton. And there's something about the fighting for it, I think that's healthy. You've got to prove yourself. I'm, I'm not above that. I will never be above that. Bring it. And often, the first person an actor sees when trying out is the casting director. What a casting director does is they're a connector. I mean, they can be a lifeline, especially if they champion you, which, which Bernie's done for me for 20 years. Bernie is Bernie Telsey, a top casting director. There's nothing more rewarding than 
finding new people. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? He sees thousands of actors audition here at his offices each month. I don't care if you know what my name is. I just want to be a star. We need to find out who the best people are to show the creative team because they don't have the time to see every single actor that exists. What are you singing today, Sarah? I'm singing Let Yourself Go. Cool. It's such a huge job. There's so many really fine, talented actors out there. Kira Sedgwick knows firsthand. She's been on both sides of the audition table as actress and action and as executive producer of the recent TV series, Proof. It really takes a special casting director not just to hand you a list that has no imagination to it. Sedgwick and her team couldn't settle on an actress to play the lead role. Jennifer Beals, who starred in Flashdance, was the last to audition. I need to know for myself. I need to find out firsthand. And she did the first scene, and it was just that moment where an actor just goes, oh, yeah, that would be my part. Thank you very much. And, you know, I mean, we read the rest of the scenes, but I wanted to turn around to all my executive producers and go, let's go celebrate, because there she is. To get to that point, casting directors cast a wide net. Take this one three-hour open call where anyone with a resume and a headshot can audition. Hey, Micah, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Cesar Rocha, one of Telsey and Company's casting directors, heard more than 100 actors sing just a few bars of musical theater songs. I don't care if I'm ever rich or famous, just so I can be a star. Some people will ask, how do you sit through hundreds and hundreds of people when most of them are not right? Because you know what? One might be. The office handles multiple projects, from theater to television, commercials to movies. So when director Rob Marshall wanted to create the movie musical Into the Woods and fill it with top stars, he hired Telsey. But first, they needed one really big name. You wish to have the curse reversed? And Meryl Streep was that name. Does it give you more access to other stars once a role is cast with someone like Meryl Streep? Yes, when you have someone like Meryl Streep, everybody wants to work with her. Telsey suggested a rising star Streep already knew. Emily Blunt came in to audition for The Baker's Wife and sang Moments in the Woods, which is the big song. Oh, if life were made of moments, even now but then a bad one. It was so magical in the room, you couldn't believe it. And I remember at the end, Emily saying to me, are you crying, Rob? And she won the role. In fact, eight years earlier, it was another casting director, Ellen Lewis, who on The Devil Wears Prada cast the then-little-known English actress Blunt opposite Streep and made her a star. I don't understand why it's so difficult to confirm an appointment. No, I'm so sorry, Miranda. I actually did... Lewis has been the casting director on 72 films, including A League of Their Own, Forrest Gump, and The Birdcage. For 25 years, she's been Martin Scorsese's go-to casting director, having done 13 films with him. Their first, the 1990s mob classic, Goodfellas. This place is pretty legendary. It is, absolutely. And it's this Rayo's in New York's East Harlem is an Italian eatery famous for its mob mystique, and it became a casting goldmine for Lewis. Nick Pileggi knew that Rayo's was a fantastic place to get the overall flavor 
of Goodfellas. There was Anthony Stabile, Frankie Carbone. Pileggi arranged a dinner so Lewis could screen real-life customers who looked the part. Some were brought over to the table knowing that we would not be able to use them in the film because maybe they were a little too connected. We ended up casting about six people. A guy named Johnny Roast Beef Williams, he's in the movie. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? What did I tell you? You don't buy anything, you hear me? Don't buy anything. They were able to add a, a fantastic uh, feeling of veracity to the film. If everyone can please take out their headshots and resume. I haven't gotten hundreds of jobs that I've auditioned for. In fact, actor Leslie Odom Jr. says there's an upside, even in rejection. It gets you better at auditioning, and you got to be good at auditioning. Every single one of them has gotten me to this moment. The world was wide enough. You know, I'm grateful for all of it now because it makes you stronger. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin' Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin' Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin' Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.